We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The toughest teams to project in the NFC. That's what we're going to be talking about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find me newsletter bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. Found off his great work at Rotoviz. And Sean, last week, well, we just got back from uh, a couple episodes where we did our draft in Spike Week's Royal Rumble. I had a few drinks on that stream. I've finally sobered up now. The episode prior, we talked about the the toughest teams well, we picked one from each division the toughest teams to project or to think through in this still sort of early off season but approaching approaching heavy draft season here the the toughest teams to project in the AFC one from each division today we're going to go into the NFC which we promised we'd get back to a little bit of a, a little bit of a break where we took that draft but Looking forward to this one. Got a, a, four fun teams to discuss. But yeah, how are you doing? How how are you feeling after carrying me through that that draft last week? Well, I don't know about that. It was I, I did try and make uh, some controversial picks immediately when you were away for a moment or two, so that uh, you wouldn't have to take responsibility for those. That part was fun. We end up with a team that that I like, and so I'm I'm enthusiastic about how the level went. I, I, you must have had some. I didn't listen back, but you must have had some, some good thoughts. I saw uh, a tweet actually that said somebody got in on Devin Singletary based on your comments after I was off the street and, and tagged me on Twitter. Which, not a surprise that you wound up on Devin Singletary, one of one of your favorites over the last few years. And just to be clear, we think that you should also be getting some James Cook shares. Cook doesn't have a great prospect profile in terms of a lot of the things that we're looking for. Didn't score particularly well well in our running back prospect lab but anytime that you have a back with that kind of explosiveness drafted into this explosive of an offense and at the part in the nfl reality draft that he was then you have to i think believe in the contingency based upside for him as well so i'm not necessarily taking this extremely strong position for singletary over cook i like both players I love the prices for them. I do feel like a Buffalo running back is going to be involved late in contests this year, just like Singletary was last year. But yes, I do like Singletary. It was fun to do that. Uh, and then we may have another draft that I'm excited about in a slightly different format coming up as a bonus episode for listeners soon. But today, as you mentioned, we're going to go over some of these NFC teams. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts because as you start to go through the projections, as I've been looking over our projections that we're about to release on the site, as I look at the range of outcomes tool on the site that has really cool information because it's not looking necessarily at the team context. It's looking at the player and the historical matches and telling you how those players played in subsequent seasons. I think that sometimes, Ben, we can get lost in thinking, okay, well, because of team context, a certain guy is going to have to get this work. You and I did a lot of shows last year on how the player's talent slash skill, that combination of tools that the player brings to the table is very important in dictating what the workload will actually be. And that when we get into situations where there are either a lot of guys or there's nobody, and that's kind of the situation we're now kind of heading for with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, that you're still going to have a mix of targets 
and work for other backs if it's a running back situation if the player who is sort of at the top of the line or the front of the queue doesn't have the talent to really hold all of that work and so even though it looks good in the projections early it's actually not going to be a dynamic fantasy outcome that's one of the things that we do see in terms of dead zone results whether you're talking about the running back dead zone or some of these other weak spots in drafts for the other positions it tends to be that those positions are targeted that part in the draft the players who are being selected there are being selected based on workload but they don't have the talent to back it up so then we get back into these nfc teams that have a lot of question marks it'll just be really interesting to hear your thoughts on how we should look at these teams and the first one we're going to start out with the nfc east and look at the new york giants the number one thing that we see there is a new coaching staff. They're interesting. We, we talked about the Eagles being another interesting one. We've talked about them a lot. So if you haven't been listening a ton, certainly, I mean, they're an interesting squad as well. But uh, the the Giants, to me, seem fairly straightforward early on in drafts as, a, a I think, a, a stack that you want to be getting some exposure to in best ball because it's pretty cheap. It's sort of an easy way if you get kind of a premium stack to get another stack you have daniel jones at quarterback with the mobility has not been very good so far in his career you have kenny galladay who was going significantly higher last year than he is like uh, just ridiculously higher last year than he is this year and he had a terrible season last year but he's still not old old right and, and he was a little banged up last year there is still plenty of good football probably left in him and we, we saw earlier in his career in detroit where that's an easy way to stack this up. You have Kadarius Tony as a really interesting small sample rookie player who, who drew targets at an incredibly high rate, very wide range of what could happen with him. We don't know a lot about the off field stuff or how, you know, whether he's going to continue to sort of have some issues that might keep him from playing full slates of games with again, a new coaching staff. Maybe he won't, right? You have Wondell Robinson, a prospect we really like that comes in. So you have this whole group of very interesting players, obviously, you know, Saquon, very interesting running back who's been hurt the last few years. And, and they're cheap. I mean, Saquon's obviously expensive, but I think Daniel Jones and the receivers are all very affordable in drafts in a way that, to me, that's sort of the straightforward way that I've been thinking about it is like, what if Brian Dable was a big reason why the Bills have been so good? What if he brings a lot of that analytically focused, you know, uh, early down pass rate and pass first mentality to New York, even if they're not particularly efficient, just calling plays in a way that does help their offense sort of overperform what they, you know, what they are in terms of talent. It could be a, a fairly interesting offense. What do you see, you know, I mean, that's that to me is sort of the straightforward question, right? But what do you see as sort of some of the nuance here? Because, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people are concerned about Tony and Wandale kind of coexisting, sort of similar profiles, sh shallower A dots, maybe playing similar roles within a formation. I think there's definitely concern about Galladay. I mean, judging by his ADP, but I think he's a fairly easy value pick. I don't want to have a ton of him, but I want to have some. What, what do you see as sort of more of the nuance with this offense? Yeah, so you mentioned this coaching staff and the analytically focused mindset. They're going to be pass first, you would think. But then the tricky part is, well, how does that work with Daniel Jones? Now, the funny thing is you actually go in and you look at our NFL pace tool. You pull up 2021, look at week 1 through 18, and you can slide the point differential to any category that you desire. You put it to 0 to 7, so a team that's tied to leading by a touchdown – Buffalo was number two in the NFL in terms of pass rate, but the Giants actually weren't that far behind. The problem just is that when you look at the number of plays in that category and the number of pass plays per 60 minutes, when we're looking at that, looking at it from that perspective, still Buffalo a lot more. The question that the Giants coaching staff will have to answer is can Daniel Jones hold up to that type of offense and where is Saquon Barkley in this mix? Now, one of the things that we've heard in the early offseason is they've been using Barkley all over the formation. This is kind of one of those things that is very similar to the best shape of his life type of narrative, but it's something that still you would prefer to hear as opposed to the other direction, right? A lot of the passes that we may see from this team in all different types of game script could be passes to Barkley where they're trying not to simply run him into the line. One of the frustrating things last year was that there 
and, and partly as someone who had Barkley on some squads, when you're watching this Giants team that can't move the ball and then they hand it to him and you know he's tackled in the backfield, you're left with this question of, well, I can't even evaluate where he is when I'm watching that play. But then the other thing is just that's a, such a low value touch when we know that Barkley coming off of those injuries is going to probably be touch limited you know, to have that kind of touch in the mix is very, very frustrating. Fast forward a year, I think that he's going to be healthier. I think that the, the touches are going to be much more high value. And we've been trying not to push it too much because we've been also trying to load up on Barkley in this early third round range. That ADP has disappeared. He's now moving into the mid-second. It gets trickier there because the players you have to pass on and the build that you have is different if you're taking him in the mid-second. Probably still a value, though. But you mentioned these four wide receivers, and we pull up your stealing signals tool it, modeled after what you do. Again, you're not responsible for this tool, so anybody who has any uh, questions about what you see, you know, message Dave Cabin at rotovizmaingmail.com. But you look at this, and the way that these guys played last year, you mentioned Kenny Galladay. The frustrating thing for him is that he just did not draw targets on a per-route basis hardly at all, right? Down there below 20%, and... That's below guys like Kyle Rudolph and Devontae Booker. You look up there at the top when you have Kadarius Tony. you mentioned him. One of the things that's interesting there is that even when he played outside of a couple of games, his route percentages were not as high as you might think. Now, we know that he was playing injured in a couple of situations. He got ejected in, in a game. Right. So he ends up having this very narrow window where he's actually playing. And so we have to take that into context as well. But not only was Galladay not drawing targets but he was very inefficient on a per target basis you know below seven yards per target there sterling shepherd also down in that range now when i'm looking at the weekly stat tool and we're looking at these wide receivers the thing that jumps out is that sterling shepherd in the games that he played was still the leader in target share but even in that perspective he just played the seven games but he's down at 21 percent Galladay below that, obviously Slayton not having many routes below that, Tony below that. And with Shepard, the interesting thing is that he might mix in a little bit here, but he has this ADP that's toward the end of drafts, and that part almost seems unrealistic as well, even though he appears to be going through practices and, and whatnot for the Giants. But you have this Achilles injury at the end of last season. We know that those are difficult to come back from. He's had all of these hamstring injuries. He's had multiple concussion problems. Sterling Shepard, unfortunately, is just someone who's very unlikely to stay healthy. From a, a drafter perspective, if you like his talent, and there have been windows where Shepard has flashed pretty serious talent, but you're probably not going to be able to count on him playing much. Then in some ways, that actually frees up these other guys. And then you mentioned we really like Wandale Robinson. The tricky part here is how will Wandale be used how much overlap is there with Tony? And then if we have these four wide receivers, plus perhaps Slayton, plus perhaps you know other more peripheral players working in, do any of these guys get up to the target volume they would need to really be targets in a uh, in a best ball draft, in a redraft draft, even if we like the talent, and even if we say see some contingency-based upside, and even if the price is not prohibitive? Yeah, and I think that's a question of philosophy somewhat in, in what you're targeting because I think it's pretty easy to say with the expected pass rate that it's very likely that one of these guys or a couple of these guys is going to be better than their ADP in that that traditional sense of saying is their finish at their at the position higher than where they were drafted and and thus a value. Because, I mean, the, really the only outcome where that doesn't happen is the efficiency is really poor and it's really spread because we're talking about really cheap prices basically across the board. So if it's if it's very spread out and the efficiency is poor, even a high pass rate won't, you know, may, may, may not be enough. But if the efficiency is even close to average, if it's at all concentrated, you said, you know, the contingency based upside, if there's injuries, if Galladay misses time, what does that mean for Tony or, or whoever potentially stepping into a pretty clear number one role for a stretch, or if Tony is missing time, is, is Galladay a pretty clear number one for a stretch? You know, th that type of concentration would pretty clearly make them a value. But when I say it's a philosophical question, I think as you were kind of talking through that, is the juice worth the squeeze? I mean, yes, they can beat ADP, but 
when you were saying, is there enough targets for them to be a, a target for us in drafts? I know your barometer is higher. My barometer is higher. We want wide receivers that are going to be difference makers. And so it's a question of who here actually has the potential to be good enough for long enough. And there is a potential that the offense as a whole is efficient or is, is, you know, average efficiency. Again, the Dable comes in and actually makes a big difference in terms of the play calling and the usage and a lot of different things that, that can happen with a coaching change. This is an offense that could be markedly different. Although that requires quite a big difference in, in the play of Daniel Jones, who has not been very good. I mean, that's just a simple fact. But I think of the players that are there, I mean, Shepard's a guy that I was interested in early in the offseason until kind of remembering the Achilles stuff. I just have a really hard time seeing it for him. Wandell has a, the potential to, to especially be a sort of a late season hammer if he comes on. I mean, if you want to look for this year's Almond Ross St. Brown, I mean, I, I think that's very possible for him it's you know there's just questions of his his size and people are comparing him to Rondell Moore well, we think Rondell Moore probably still has potential to be a lot better than what we saw last year I'm comfortable with him I'm comfortable with Tony in the right spots um I, I do think the upside is there from what he flashed in his small sample last year but there's a lot of risk I mean it comes with a wide range it's not necessarily a small miss big hit type play to me it's a big miss big hit and I think I'm comfortable with God I mean I think I can see for Wandale and Tony and Galladay, scenarios where they can be good enough that it it really does crush their ADP and, and justifies a lot of this, but it does require kind of a two-step. It requires the offense being better, and then it requires them to be the guy. Again, I think there's a lot of scenarios where we can say that one of these guys will be a little bit better than ADP, but if the offense is still not efficient, maybe none of them will really crush ADP. I think that's a perfect way to look at it. One of the things that appeals to me a lot in drafts right now is that especially in the hyper fragile builds if you're looking for receivers to pepper in all through the draft and, and late in drafts these guys give you options that could be as you mentioned big hits i like Wandale very very late his price extremely appealing i think that you want to put him into as many teams as you can kind of make fit he's got that week nine buy which sometimes is a little bit tricky it's the heaviest buy week and if you already have a lot of receivers with that week nine by then maybe he doesn't work at the end kj hamler in a similar circumstance there but tony and galladay because i like them but don't need to have them those are both players where you got two different shots at it and you can always look to get them after adp because if you miss i mean it's probably not a big deal to what you're trying to do and then with Galladay, especially, you said, you know, some of these things are going to, we'll, we'll see how the offense evolves. One of the elements that they've talked about is that they're going to try and get Daniel Jones to push the ball a little bit more, push it in intelligent situations. When you look at what he did last year with the 10 touchdowns and the seven interceptions, obviously that's not a good ratio there. But Galladay needs him to be able to throw down the field to unlock what Galladay does best. We talk about Galladay and just how terrible his profile was last year. But obviously the reason they signed him to that big contract is that he did add that vertical element for the Lions. Galladay to hit, he has to be healthy, and then he needs this coaching staff to make a big difference in terms of the way that he's utilized, not just in terms of himself, but how they unlock Daniel Jones. If that happens, Galladay could be pretty interesting. Yeah, he's interesting because both the two years before he left Detroit, his, you know, I mean, his yards per out run were over two. The, the final year, 2020, a smaller route sample, but a full year in 2019. A lot of that was driven by the yards per target side. He didn't draw targets at a huge clip. And you mentioned it was even down last year from that, but he has never really shown a huge uh, targets per outrun ceiling. But because he adds the vertical element, the really high ADOT, if Jones is good at throwing the ball down the field, I mean, you, I've, I've looked at it in terms of the you know weighted targets per outrun and, and included air yards. He, he gets to pretty comfortable ranges there. And then while he was with Detroit, he had, you know, multiple seasons in a row of, of a strong yards per target, strong efficiency. He's actually a very good downfield receiver when you have the high A dot and you're earning at least some volume, solid volume. If you're able to make enough plays in these jump ball, contested catch situations, if you will, you're going to have a pretty strong yards per target. There's going to be a little bit of correlation between that A dot and the yards per target. And so he was able to maintain that very effectively throughout his Detroit career. It cratered last year that efficiency the downfield efficiency and, and that's a big reason we see him be so poor last year as well as you know not earning as much targets as we said or maybe sometimes it's just Daniel Jones not feeling comfortable pulling the trigger down the field as much or going quick to Tony in some of those spots in the games where Tony was there 
but yeah, the, the pro outcome or the positive, you know, bull case for, for Kenny Galladay is look, he earns more targets and, and what we saw over multiple years in Detroit, which was better than last year, we get back there and we see the improved efficiency downfield. I don't think it's crazy. I mean, I, I definitely think there's still scenarios. I think, I think the giants are, you know, it's a new regime, but they are tied to him somewhat with, you know, a pretty solid contract. They got to be thinking we want to, we want to make him into a key part of our passing game. I mean, that would be if I'm Brian Dable and I'm coming in, it's like, I got to find a way to get Kenny Galladay going. That's going to open up a lot. If we can get him as a vertical element and they, they had a success in Buffalo for a long time, obviously with different vertical receivers, even if he's, you know, a Gabriel Davis with more routes, like that's not Stefan Diggs necessarily, not, not the number one in, that, that we've known from Buffalo, but this vertical player and red zone threat that, that Gabe Davis was last year, <clears throat> obviously Galladay would be running more routes. I mean, that would be, that would be a pretty solid outcome for, for Galladay. But a lot of that does hinge, as you said, on Daniel Jones ability to get the ball to him down the field. And that efficiency side, I think is going to be really, really huge, a, a reasonable bet to make though. Let's jump over to uh, the NFC North. We picked the Packers. Again, we have a team that we've talked a ton about that would be fun as the Lions. We love the Lions, but we're going to talk about the Lions more than more than anyone else. Sean, a big fan of the Lions. We have, we have a blast talking about them. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We chose the Packers here. I mean, I think you can make a good case for all the teams in this division, frankly, but the Vikings with the new coaching staff. The Packers are really interesting in the con- very similar context to the Giants where all of their receivers are pretty cheap. Feels like some of one of them, some of them, somebody's going to beat ADP or, or probably we're going to start to see some, some steam. We've seen talk that, you know, this opportunities there for Alan Lazard to step into the number one role. We really liked him as a prospect, a big producer out of college was a UDFA kicked around has been okay with the Packers, but hasn't, I mean, you made a point on a recent, uh, show of ours that you know if he they they had a need for a number two basically alongside Adams and and he never really stepped up into that clear number two role. So what evidence do we necessarily have that he can step into like this Devontae Adams role? It's fun to dream on like oh hey he could be Rogers' new go to guy. Obviously also have Sammy Watkins there. You have the two rookies Christian Watson and Robio Dubs who I love. Dubs is one of my favorite ways to play this offense. You have Robert Tunyon coming back from injury. You have Randall Cobb still kicking around. I think you have the possibility of them still adding a wide receiver with some of these free agents that are floating around. It's a really interesting offense. Also, in large part, I think, and, and really the conversation should start at, because of the running back position. And at the running back position, one of the really uh, trendy things to say about this offense right now is how Aaron Jones is going to step into a much bigger receiving role. He always has played a much bigger receiving role when Devonta Adams has been out in the past. My take on that is that's been partly because that's been a little bit sporadic. They've had a tendency, I think, to lean on Jones more when they've needed to, when they've needed more of a playmaker. I'm not sure that 
it's easy to extrapolate that over a full season. I'm not sure that we will see. I, I do think they will use Jones as an effective part of their passing game. I think some of the optimism there is a little bit aggressive. It's basically taking a very small sample split and saying that that's going to be something that can last over the whole season. I think it will be tough for Aaron Jones to be basically their number one weapon from a receiving perspective. But it does seem to make a lot of sense, right, to be splitting him out more and having both running backs on the field because you have another really good running back in A.J. Dillon and a bigger, more physical between the tackles bruiser transitioning Jones into sort of a hybrid role where he's split out wide and sometimes when Dillon's also on the field. Gets Dillon on the field more. It gets you five skill position players that are better than if you're only playing one of those running backs. I mean, getting them both on the field gets your five best skill players on the field at the same time. So it all fits. It all makes a lot of sense. How, how are you thinking through their running backs and then obviously their receivers being a bunch of guys that we don't really know what to what to think of? Well, I've been a little bit skeptical of A.J. Dillon's ADP, even though he's one of my favorite players in the NFL. You mentioned Aaron Jones getting very involved. Last year, Dillon caught 34 of his 38 targets, turned that into 313 yards and a couple of touchdowns. He averaged almost two more yards per reception than Jones, which again doesn't suggest that he's the better receiver or that he'll get nearly as much receiving volume. One of the things that you and I did in the FFPC playoff contest that worked very nicely for us is that we pivoted to Jones from Devonte Adams to try and get a little differentiation there betting on the possibility for at least a single game explosion where Jones was very involved as a receiver very involved just overall we hit on that I think he's going to have some games like that whether or not the two players together or either of them individually can hit to the level that we've seen from a Christian McCaffrey or an Austin Eckler I think that part will be tricky because they are going to still need to incorporate the downfield weapons. We did a show on the projected win totals, and it looks like the Packers are still going to be leading in most of these games against the NFC North. They're not necessarily going to trail in the fourth quarter of games where you might see a lot of these drives where the running backs are involved in a dump off type of situation, as we do see some from some of these teams that really drive those running back touches we think that they'll get ahead and they'll try and limit the total number of snaps which is in some ways unfortunate for all of these players we talk about the the Packers in the passing game and one of the things that you see here you look at their current roster and unlike the Giants who have a lot of guys who are sort of okay and interesting the Packers appear to have a lot of guys who are simply not starters and from that perspective, I think Christian Watson is the most interesting guy because they've drafted him to be this athletic freak who comes in and makes the defense pay attention. Now, how quickly that's going to happen is another question. We know that in previous years, when the Packers actually had good wide receiver depth, it would take some time for these rookies to come in and actually take off with Aaron Rodgers. You look at some players in the past with the Packers, like a Jordy Nelson, like a Devontae Adams, both of those guys were basically con considered to be busts before they finally broke out, not just to being good players, but to being among the ultra elite. Considering what Watson's offensive context has been in college, some of the red flags that he has as a prospect and some of the encouraging things he has as a prospect, it might be a lot to ask for him to really be that dynamic player in 2022 so then you get to this question of well does sammy watkins have anything left because he's been one of these buzzworthy guys i think if you watched him play with the chiefs if you watched him play with the ravens it's hard to believe that aaron Rodgers is going to elevate him in a way that for the most part patrick mahomes did now there were a couple of spike games in there where sammy watkins scored a ton of points and so if you come out in week one and sammy watkins has 250 and three I don't think that's impossible. I also don't think that necessarily means that he's going to have a big season. <laughs> so <laughs> we have to kind of keep that in perspective. You mentioned Dubs. He's one of these players who probably more athletic than people give him credit for, has the great hands. We'll see how quickly they bring him along. We haven't gotten a lot of buzz about him in the early going. 
Matthew Friedman, when he was on overtime, even made a pitch for their seventh round pick, who's sort of a flyer out of Nebraska, was previously a big time performer at Wyoming, I believe. So you have a little more depth there. We have Randall Cobb still sticking around. You have the Amari Rogers selection from a year ago, where he was somewhat trendy, even though they didn't necessarily have the work for him. Now they probably do, but I think people have kind of gotten used to the fact that he probably was not a prospect who was going to make a difference at the NFL level. And again, I say probably there. And you mentioned Alan Lazard. And one of the reasons that Lazard is interesting to me is that his profile has shifted during the years, depending on what the Packers needed. In 2019, he was this vertical weapon targeted 14 yards down the field. The next year, they had that element more with MVS, and so he drops down to being a pure possession receiver there at 9.5, and, and then last year he jumps back to around 11, which is more kind of in that range that we would be looking at as you know a, a sort of a traditional number one or number two running sort of the, the fuller type of route or being targeted in this more intermediate area as opposed to having a vertical or a pure possession type of workload. And one of the things to keep in mind, too, is that before Christian Watson, and Watson is a better athlete, but Alan Lazard, one of these guys with great size, this combination of elite agility and leaping ability, a freak score star, again, not quite to that level, but before Watson came in, and MVS was too, one of the things that we have witnessed here with the Packers is they have prioritized these guys who have good length and athleticism Watson, the next guy in the mix, but perhaps Lazard is the player this year first. Well, the reason we picked this team is they have a lot of guys, and it doesn't seem like they necessarily have a lot of answers from those players. Yeah, I love those notes on Lazard. I mean, he's a guy I still think way back to, I, I took in the late rounds of, of some dynasty rookie drafts because I was bugging you for some some names that you liked way deep in, in uh, and I remember this was in a, a, a pre-draft rookie draft and then he went undrafted and you're like, Oh, thanks Sean. You're giving me undrafted players here. Good work, Sean. And so then I kept him on my roster and uh, wound up being pretty, pretty excited about it. I did hold him even through, you know, the, he, he landed with Jacksonville initially. Right. And then, and then winds up with green Bay, but he's, certainly made something out of his career as a UDFA, but was a guy a long time ago that looked like, I mean, you go back to his college profile. I mentioned, uh, I believe at Iowa state, right. It looked like a very productive type of player from, from any of the market share perspectives and, and the type of guy that could be a true number one. So I, I, I always love those, those stats on the ability to perform at different depths. He seems like a fun one. Watson's interesting. You know, you mentioned some of the other rookies. You mentioned, I, I mean, it, I think there's something to even what we saw with Amari Rogers last year and just Aaron Rodgers not necessarily trusting these young guys. And and then with Watson, you know, a team we're going to talk about here soon, San Francisco, he played with Trey Lance in college to not really put up big receiving numbers, even when you played with a quarterback who ends up being a top five overall pick in the NFL. Not a glowing recommendation in my mind. Yes, he has the athleticism, but that's a that's a pretty big concern. It's a concern for Lance still as well. I mean, one of the things that I always like to note is that it, it just seems crazy to me that in the national championship game, Lance threw, I believe, fewer than 10 passes. And in part, that'll go to our San Francisco notes here in a bit about what some of the upside is for Lance. But both of these guys limited in part by the fact that their team is more or less dominating the opponent without having to throw. Yeah, he's interesting. I I mean, I, I still just... It could be Lazard. I mean, it seems like the most likely outcome, right, is Lazard is a little bit of a better version of what he's been the last couple of years. Watson is providing sort of a early career Chase Claypool element to this offense, but maybe not even as productive, but with some splash plays, using athleticism, scoring a few touchdowns, probably some long plays, maybe sort of filling that MVS role to a degree. I still want to believe that Romeo Dubs is going to ultimately be the one that steps in and, and has, I mean, I, I think he has that ceiling. It seems aggressive. I just made the case that Rogers doesn't like rookies. So why would he like this other rookie when I'm talking about the, you know, him not necessarily liking Christian Watson, but 
Dubs's production at least suggests maybe a little bit more consistency, and that might allow him to stick quicker if Watson is making you know some mistakes or is not as consistent. That's probably one of the things that's going to irk Rodgers, maybe you know, implying here a little bit of a, a higher football IQ on Dubs or something. You know, just trying to read between the lines a little bit. But I, I do think a big part of this, the big production numbers that we see at receiver and, and why I look at targets per run and all that is less about the explosive plays and more about the consistency on a route to route basis and being in the spot where the quarterback knows you're going to be when he calls a specific play and you run a specific route. You know, we, we look at like separation numbers are not always the most predictive, but some of that I think is, yeah, maybe the guy's not creating as much separation. The quarterback's still willing to pull the trigger because he's so consistent with his route. So the quarterback knows he's going to come out of his break. He's more willing than to throw right as he comes out of his break it's so so bang bang but that's why you might see some some of these receivers get these tight window throws that's something that we've seen with rogers and adams so much right the back shoulder i know you're going to stop and, and turn on that back shoulder at this exact time or i know with a glance that i'm you know i'm coming to you quick or whatever and that's been a big part of adams his target share and his numbers over the years i guess i'm just sort of of this of this mindset that because dub showed that production level in college that that he's going to have a easier path to getting there with Rodgers in 2022 but obviously the draft capital is massively different and, and a big deal as well so Watson an interesting play I, I yeah I mean I, I there's a lot of ways to play this offense it's it's a fun one we'll talk a lot more about it through the offseason I, I really do want to jump over to San Francisco though you you mentioned them that's who we picked for the NFC West a lot of fun teams in that division as well but this is a team where with the expected quarterback change, with the talent at the top, it's it's pretty undeniable that Debo Samuel's going later than he otherwise would just because of the quarterback change. I mean, he's going sort of mid-second, probably would have been a first-round pick if, say, Garoppolo's back. Kittle definitely is. I guess that's that one's more undeniable. I mean, he's going into like the fifth round, I think, in a draft I was in last night. Ayuk is you know still getting some love but not really being steamed up we have we had this discussion last year how could all three of these guys coexist in an offense where lance was expected to play more than he did and the answer was sort of that they, they didn't really i mean debo absolutely smashed Ayuk didn't play a ton early kittle had some injury issues didn't really have you know a dominant season but what we saw out of lance was an 86 drop back sample and his scramble rates and his design run rates were massive in that sample very very small sample but what I, i've already done my projection for this team and when i looked at them number one the first thing obviously that stands out you look at their pass rate over expected you look at some of those elements this is a run heavy team kyle shanahan calls a run heavy game regardless sort of of who's been a quarterback they're gonna call more run plays then you look at some of the other rushing quarterbacks. You look at Lamar, Jalen Hurts, Josh Allen, Kyler, Justin Fields. A lot of those guys, and especially the ones that have played three or four years now, uh, you know, Lamar and Allen, Kyler, their scramble rates and their design run rates maybe were a little heavier than they were once they got a little more settled as passers and in into like their third seasons, right? So we see that, and we see that with the raw rush rates typically that the running quarterbacks are going to run a little more really early in their career. Lance, especially as a guy who didn't look comfortable as a passer last year, and you noted some of the stuff from college where he didn't even throw a lot in their national championship game. He was heavily leaned on for his rushing in college has incredible athleticism and so for his size has sort of like a Cam Newton or Josh Allen type of element to him where tough to bring down as well. And, and could just be an incredible runner. I think there's a pretty strong case could be in that mold where his rush rates, his design run rates that Kyle Shanahan might be, if he's if Lance is in there for 17 games this year, might be more comfortable leaning on him to run the ball in certain spots than to drop back to throw, especially you start talking about the red zone and places like that. Looking at the rates that the other mobile quarterbacks have had, Lance, far beyond that, very small sample last year. But even when you really like nuke his scramble rates and his design run rates, with this offense already being pretty run heavy, I had an incredibly hard time limiting how much rushing I would put for Lance. And one of the things that I think we don't do enough when we talk about the mobile quarterbacks is 
sort of the degree of their mobility. It's easy to just be like, yeah, he adds that rushing element. But there are certain guys that 500 rush yards is like a really strong number. There were only three guys that hit 500 last year. They all hit 700. It was Hertz, Lamar, and Josh Allen. And no one had over 800 rush yards. Lamar had 1,000-yard rushing seasons in 2020 and 2019. He was the first run, uh, quarterback to do that since Michael Vick. The only, they're the only two to this point. Where I'm going this with, with this, with Trey Lance, is that when I did their projection, having them pretty run heavy, looking at the, the rate at which I expect Lance might scramble when he does get called pass plays, at the rate at which they might call him at his number at, on design runs, especially if they don't want to use Debo running as much anymore, which we know is a point of contention. They're going to use their running backs a ton, obviously. They're going to use Debo some running the ball. But Lance having designed run plays is sort of, Part of the equation probably of Debo's rush get, rush rate getting scaled back a little bit. As much as I really pushed his 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 rushing numbers down from that small sample last year, I still wound up having him rush about 150 times, which is a huge number. There were only three quarterbacks who had 100 carries last year. None of them had 150. It's a three that I mentioned. In the last few years, it's basically only been Lamar who's been over 150 carries. And you go way back to 2019, his huge season. And a big part of that was his passing numbers, but he had 176 carries. I mean, it was way beyond everyone else. Josh Allen was second that year with 109 carries. So again, this degree to which his rushing could manifest. I mean, I wound up projecting Lance for 150 carries as a baseline, which which with any kind of rushing efficiencies, like an 800-yard rushing season would have led the league last year at quarterback. This is assuming 17 games, and there is risk there for sure. But we're talking about, I mean, I, I think you can pretty easily justify him, like projecting him as a baseline rushing for even more than that. I was really cutting his rates. And if you're looking at their run-heavy team and you're saying, I don't think they're going to trust Lance to throw a lot. They're going to call design rushes. He's also going to scramble as he struggles as a passer somewhat, he could be up around 200 carries. And if he's up around 200 carries, you're, you're probably talking about close to a thousand yard rushing season. Most quarterbacks average about five yards per carry. You're probably talking about close to 10 rushing touchdowns with his size and, and the way that they might use him in the, in the red zone. What's really interesting about that is just what it would mean, obviously for Debo and for Kittle and Ayuk. Trying to put numbers to that is interesting, but also, I, I mean, I, I'm, I, you have to regress some of the efficiency on guys like Debo, but they're going to create plays. And this offense is designed for yards after the catch. Again, like I still want to have exposure to Debo and Kittle in them, but I just keep going back to Lance where if they're making any plays after the catch or making any plays as a receiver, they're going to just be improving Lance's passing numbers as well, which might be low level if he runs as much as I'm sort of suggesting. But I came out of my projection for the Niners thinking that Trey Lance was a pretty clear pick at ADP. Somebody's probably going to rise as, as people start talking about their projections as well. The only time I, other time I've ever felt this way doing a projection where I felt like there was almost no cap on the quarterbacks rushing was Lamar Jackson's second season. He had a very small sample in his rookie year as well. And mostly was coming in for some rushing packages and then played late that year and ran a lot. Uh, and it was like, man, you can really easily say if he's anywhere near these rushing rates that he's going to, rush for a thousand yards and that's something that was very popular in the fantasy industry and lamar was a very popular late round qb for that reason now again big part of why he blew up in year two was the passing was huge you look at like jalen hurts last year great rushing numbers passing wasn't nearly as huge and he was like qb 10 i mean he was good but to me if lance plays 17 games that's sort of like the floor i mean you can't really get a lot lower passing numbers than hurts had last year go back to uh, kyler's rookie year and josh allen's rookie year in 2019 sort of similar, very low passing numbers, strong, pretty strong rushing seasons, but like 500 yard rushing seasons. I'm saying Lance might have 800 yards rushing. I don't know. I mean, he's a tough one. I, I, if he plays the 17 games, the way that this offense is designed, I just don't see any scenarios where he's not a top 10 quarterback and he's going about QB 10 right now. Well, Ben, thanks for ruining that for all of us. I'm now on a, a long streak here of selecting Trey Lance in the eighth round of every draft. Every time I write it up, I say I think he's going much higher. Hopefully that's not the case because while there is some risk, as you pointed out, the upside here is tantalizing. If he finished as the QB1 this season, I would not be remotely surprised. And part of that is because he has incredible weapons. Maybe the most controversial of the three players that you mentioned as the receiving stars is Brandon Ayuk. And we all know that his 
season sort of turned on a dime last year. But just kind of splitting it half and half, looking in the stealing signals tool, you can see that he had a 69% route percentage over the first nine weeks. That jumps up to 92% from week 10 to week 18, where he easily led Samuel and Kittle, who were at 81 and 78 respectively. The interesting thing here, and we're talking about Debo Samuel and just how dynamic and yet exasperatingly confusing his profile is. This is someone who not only did his route rate drop because he started to be used so heavily as a running back, but he actually had the third ranked target per route during that stretch of those three guys. At 20% there, a little bit below Ayuk at 21, Kittle all the way up at 27. We know that he dealt with injuries last year. And then you mentioned the yards after the catch element that the 49ers offense is structured to create. All of these players were above 10 yards per target during that week 10 to week 18 range. What when the 49ers really sort of came on, made their playoff push, you know, almost get themselves back to the Super Bowl based on uh, what they did then in the playoffs. But to think of the, all three of those guys being above 10 yards per target, despite the fact that the deepest any of the three was targeted was 10.1 yards down the field. That was Ayuk. Again, you're talking about very good pass efficiency from Jimmy Garoppolo, then the run after the catch that all three of those players bring. They may be three of the top you know, 10 or 15 guys in the entire NFL when it comes to what they can do with the ball in their hands Debo Samuel, we talk about all the other things that seem unsustainable about what he did last year and these crazy, insane touchdown rates, but he was at just a fraction under 13 yards per target over that second half of the season. The way that I like to play this is to play Debo because he has this crazy talent. I think that he is right there with Cooper Cup and the rising stars in Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase as the best wide receiver in the NFL. He's got so much variety in terms of what he can do that if there are some struggles in one area, I think they'll be balanced out in another. And yet, for the reasons that you said about how this run-heavy offense could become even more so with Trey Lance scrambling on a lot of these plays that probably were supposed to be pass plays, in addition to just design runs for him because of what he brings to the table. Now, hopefully for those of us who are drafting the receivers, a lot of that will actually come out of Elijah Mitchell and the running backs but you have this volume concern, and yet you have so many different ways they could play out in his favor, including if Ayuk were to, for any reason, kind of regress and have some of those troubles he had last in the first half of last year, or if Kittle has injuries, as he's dealt with from time to time. The injury to one of the three players in this mix, I think, makes the other two guys elite. And one of the things that we've talked about, or heard at least the 49ers as they try and build Lance up, because there definitely are still some questions, is that his arm talent could unlock these guys down the field and we know that garoppolo wasn't really able to make those throws and we also know that despite the fact that they're so good after the catch that there is some vertical ability to these three guys as well i mean these are elite receiving options the two receivers and the tight end kittle as you mentioned has gotten so inexpensive that you have to play him Ayuk is the one that despite being the least expensive i've had some troubles getting on board with simply because those other two guys i think are just absolute superstars but you can definitely make the argument for mixing him in as well because he's in this area where we've talked about how maybe the wide receivers are not as compelling as they've been in past seasons i think despite the traffic jam it does make sense to draft these three players based on scenarios that would make them league winners but we do want to you know try and kind of work in as much price discipline as we can because there are scenarios, especially I think over the first half of the season, as the 49ers are trying to make this work, where you may draft these three players and then be a month in and think, uh, you know, a little bit like we were with the Vikings a couple of years ago. We're like, are they going to throw any passes? Is this offense going to work for us? How how do these scenarios I thought I saw in the preseason, how do they come to fruition? Yeah, that's the way I felt when I was doing the projection. Is One of the ways that I looked at it, especially on the touchdown side with Debo's massive rates. I mean, because if you're being this run heavy and you're projecting a lot of runs from Lance, it's almost impossible to project Debo for the number of targets that you'd like to project him for. You can still give him some rushes, but obviously we know, and a good number of rushes. I gave him a couple, like averaging like two per game. There was a point where he was averaging significantly more than that, but we know that that's not what they necessarily want to do or what he, he wants to do. But 
you know, 30 plus rushes is a lot for a receiver. And that's, that's where I have him, but still like to, to look at his TD rates, both as a rusher, like on a per rush basis, on a per target basis, they're, they're wildly unsustainable. And yet I still projected them very high because I was looking at it from this context of the sort of the market share of TDs, which we talk about a lot with the prospects. I've seen some people incorporate that into their projections around the industry. I'm a pretty big fan of that. I think that makes a lot of sense because when I think about it from that perspective, I'm thinking, okay, who's going to score for the Niners? They're projected to be an above average offense. That's another element that, that goes to Lance as well, right? That This is a team that's going to have, if you look at the, the Vegas lines, if you look at their projections throughout the year and all the other elements, they're a team that's going to have scoring opportunities. And who's going to score for them? Like certainly the running backs are going to score a decent amount combined. Maybe that's split in various ways. I think that leaves a lot of opportunity for Lance to rush for a decent number of touchdowns. But also as it relates to Debo, as it relates to Kittle, as it relates to IU, I wanted to make sure that basically their, their percent share of the touchdowns in the offense, even if I wasn't giving them a ton of targets, was reasonably high. Because if this offense does move the ball and is successful, even if they're running all over the field, and they get down into the red zone, they need to do different things. They're going to they're going to put the ball in Debo Samuel's hands one way or another at, at a decent amount of the time. And so, I'm yeah, I'm probably going to wind up projecting him for higher touchdown rates than pretty much any other player in the league. And I think it's justifiable from that sense where you you can't wind up with a projection where just because you're so run heavy, the offense doesn't have enough touchdowns overall relative to what it's projecting for or looks like in the in the big picture in the in the Vegas markets. And I, I certainly don't want to be allocating all of those touchdowns just on the ground or um, to sort of inferior talents when I do think that that Debo's probably going to be a guy that they rely on on those key, you know, high value touches, whether that is as a runner or, you know, use, using him in a jet motion tip pass way, which, you know, be receiver or, or throwing him screens down in the red zone, you know, different things that, or him creating big plays, right? Him creating after the catch and these long touchdowns that he had several of last year, again, not sustainable, but doesn't mean he can't have a couple, you know, or, or it really doesn't mean he can't re repeat the rate at which he did it. It doesn't seem sustainable, but he's incredibly good. And so looking at it from that perspective, sort of the share of touchdowns, he had about 30% of their TDs as a team last year. Um, I, I knocked that down, but I still have his TD rate. to like 24%. I still have his TD rates incredibly high and just put some numbers to the land stuff. His design run rate last year was 30%. Most of the quarterbacks are under 20%, even the scramblers. Lamar's big 2019 season, he did the went the entire season at about 29% design run rate. He was at 23% in 2020, down to about 17% last year. I had I I moved Lance all the way down to a 17% design run rate because it is a very small sample where he was way up at 30%. But that's why I'm saying I could see him even break through the number that I'm projecting in terms of rush attempts because it wouldn't be that surprising if, like Lamar in his first couple of years, Lance was getting design runs called on more than 20% of his dropbacks. And if I mean, I, th I feel like there's more room for him to beat that 17% number I just said, which is below Kyler Murray's, you know, typical numbers. Or I think it's in the range of Kyler, but it's below Jalen Hurts, both the Jalen Hurts seasons. It's in the range of like Kyler and, and Josh Allen and some of these guys. There's still more room for uh, for Lance to beat that. So I agree with everything you said, though, in terms of how to play these players and some of the concerns, right? I mean, th this is a really interesting offense. I do think the market has it right to be a little bit wary of overall volume because we do see that. I mean, we saw that with the Eagles last year. It can still be a pretty good offense, and this Niners offense would probably be expected to be better than the Eagles. But when you have a guy like what Hertz was doing with the Eagles last year, running a lot, and the team is run heavy anyway, and Hertz was eating up a lot of the touchdowns in near the, the red zone, it's tough for the skill position guys to have the types of spike weeks and to have the types of overall volume for the season that the, the when we look at over at San Francisco that would justify where these ADPs are. So not, I mean, I, I guess probably the best, way that I would put this from an actual perspective is I don't think this is an offense. I really want to be like multiple, you know, stacking multiple ways. I'm with you that there's a, a, a strong contingency based argument as well, where if Kittle or if Debo misses time, or if I misses time, that things are going to concentrate to the other guys and they really have a lot of upside, but I don't know if I want to be making bets on like Debo and Kittle in the same, on the same team, because I think some of their upside overlaps. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. I think you can, put them in there with Lance because a true tournament winning game from Lance is probably going to rest on him 
hitting a couple touchdowns through the air as well. But it would be hard to see both Samuel and Kittle having monstrous seasons. Just to put a little more context on some of these rushing numbers and throw in a name that I know that you want to hear in the pods from time to time. Last season, Justin Fields played 634 snaps, rushed for 420 yards. There is upside for these guys who have the extreme athleticism there as rushers. Then we don't have a lot of time to get into our last team, and it's probably the one that uh, in some ways we can save for future shows. But the New Orleans Saints have this very interesting team where they add Chris Olave in the draft. They add Jarvis Landry in free agency after he wasn't able to kind of get exactly the situation that he was hoping for early on. But then the notes out of their team activities have been very enthusiastic about how he has looked. You mentioned on our underdog draft stream that Michael Thomas really still on one leg, maybe quite a bit from being able to play. I think there's probably more concern about his health situation than for some other guys who maybe are higher profile or more expensive. And, and we see the injuries working in with them very much in the rhetoric about, you know, should you draft them? Should you not? If Michael Thomas doesn't play Olave and Jarvis Landry get pretty exciting. Even if Jameis Winston is closer to the 2021 version than that high flying, high touchdown, incredibly high interception version that he was with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yeah. We just talked about Lance and, and, or maybe ruining the fun there. I, I I feel like at some point we have to ruin the fun with Jarvis Landry's ADP because if if even if Thomas is healthy, Landry was still drawing targets at a really strong rate last year and still just makes so much sense at his ADP right now. And then there's that element where if Thomas is not really right, I mean Landry just steps in alongside a, a potentially a good rookie, but. Isn't he just clearly the guy who's going to earn a ton of volume here? Obviously, Camara's there as well. I mean, assuming that we don't know what's going to potentially come from a from a suspension and, and what would happen. But I, I, I mean, I, I really like the potential for Landry to to keep it going for one more year and, and earn targets at a high rate on a per route basis with a quarterback who was never particularly if, like efficient as a deep passer, but is good in the intermediate, deep intermediate range and, and intermediate range. Winston's always been pretty accurate in those those ranges where that's sort of the extent of of Landry's route tree. He's not running the deep routes. Alave probably will be running some of those deep routes. If it's just those two guys for the most part, now if it's if it's Thomas as well, yeah, Thomas and Landry are going to kind of overlap some. But I think they're still like those are going to be the two main guys. I mean, that's again where Jameis has sort of made his mark over the years and been most effective is in these ranges, the the 10 to 15 yard range, if you will. And those guys are certainly running some routes that are even shorter than that. But I I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I think Landry is the, the clearest target here. I don't really love the fit with Olave as much as I can see, you know, the reason for excitement and, and I want to have some exposure to him because he's a, you know, a high profile rookie going into an offense that, plays in a dome and and has some available opportunity. He's going to play a lot right away. I think, you know, you look at his profile down the stretch of his career, his best tar- college targets per run season, I believe was a sophomore year. It went down his ju- junior year and then his senior year. He's a four-year player. As his target competition got stronger, he was sort of less target dominant. As Garrett Wilson came on, as uh, Jackson Smith and Jigbo was, you know, on the roster these last couple of years, who was still at Ohio State. Uh, Alave was still good, but was taking a little bit more of a backseat. And you do have, you know, Garrett Wilson's targets per run increasing, and you have JSN's increasing. To me, that's sort of a sign that Alave could be a really good number two in the NFL. I mean, you put him on a roster with two guys and Michael Thomas and Jarvis Landry that are, you know, bona fide target earners. You kind of, I think, need Thomas to be out for Alave to really have a big season, especially because of them not being a great fit with Jameis, but. I don't mind taking those shots, but he's not one of my favorite rookies to target for those reasons. Not No real interest in the tight ends in this offense. So, yeah, I mean, Jarvis is the one that just screams to me that that he is 
in in most scenarios where it plays out, they still don't have a lot of weapons behind that. The big story for the Saints last year was that their main route runners, Marcus Callaway and Traquan Smith, were their main two guys, didn't earn targets very well. And their role players actually on smaller route rates had really high targets per outrun, a few of them. It was Deontay Harris was among the league leaders in his very small sample. Kenny Stills, when he was playing with them, had pretty strong targets per outrun. Uh, I believe little Jordan Humphrey was the other one who had a pretty, pretty strong number because you have these guys that are out there running routes as your one and two that aren't earning volume. And so as the rotational players come in, they have a much better shot at, at, at earning the target on that route. Those guys are still on the roster, Callaway and Traquan, and probably are going to be the ones that are sort of mixing in and in, in when they rotate sets. I really think it's going to be concentrated. And, and Troutman also a guy who didn't earn a ton of volume. So I really think it's going to be concentrated to Thomas Landry and what Alave can bring. And then when you look at it from that perspective, if Alave doesn't hit, if Thomas isn't healthy, it just feels like Landry is this guy that is such a nice, nice value in the 12 plus rounds sometimes. And you mentioned his ability to demand targets. His target per route 27% last season is the same as DK Metcalf, Brandon Cook, Stephon Diggs. Now, those guys did have a higher route percentage. Those guys are all above 83%. Jarvis Lander was just below 75%. And we saw him run a few more routes or draw a few less targets over the center of the field last season, where if you pull up the player stat explorer and look at his past location over the past several years, you'll see that being used over the center in 2020, which is a very helpful place for a team to be able to have a guy who can run those routes and can catch passes and then deliver some yards after the catch from those types of passes. Not quite as many of those in 2021 as 2020, but still a dynamic threat really all over the field, not necessarily limited to one side, not necessarily limited to one depth, although we know he's not going to take very many of those vertical targets. So my concern would be that Alave, despite the speed, maybe not quite as much of a vertical threat as his profile would indicate, but they do work at different levels. Olave, very good at getting open. That was one of the main things that he brought to that Ohio State offense, just basically open on every single play. Now, one of the things is with those players he's playing with, the defense basically doesn't have any options. I mean, they're going to get beat when you're having to also defend those other two receivers. But the Saints drafted Olave with the idea that he was the most pro-ready. They obviously want to win the season, despite having the switch at head coach despite still being with Jameis Winston and probably a low ceiling there despite all of the salary cap issues that they were dealing with they make some trades to get more first round picks they're all in on this season those two guys could end up with a pretty concentrated target volume and then even if Michael Thomas gets in there and start to take a lot of those slant type of targets that he is so famous for I still think that Landry will be able to work in it seems like the, the player who doesn't have a lot of overlap and may actually be a little bit underdrafted is Olave. Where are you in terms of his price? Maybe the issue is price and upside as opposed to price and sort of median outcome. Where he's more of a high, a high floor, but doesn't have the ceiling we need. Right. That's a good way of putting it. I mean, that's sort of the way that I'm viewing it. I don't, Again, I, I want to have some exposure to him because he's not exactly uh, expensive. And you, I think you want to have exposure to any of these types of rookies in this range. But that's that's a good way of putting it. I, I you know, the the comments about him being more pro ready. I, I do feel like he's going to be a productive pro. He had strong numbers. When I was talking about his targets per run kind of fading, they're still good. But I just the profile doesn't to me look like one that he comes in and has a massive rookie year. It looks like one where he comes in and he's more of a role player and a, a solid number two. And then there's the the questions of the whole offense and all that. I mean, it's weird that I would think that Landry has a better chance to smash ADP, but it's, it's almost purely on a targets basis alone that as sort of the veteran, I think he has the potential to, to really out target a lot of it, but maybe that's, maybe that's mistaken. Well, he's almost free as he is or has been for several years now. He almost paid off in a big way last season. I'm trying to uh, get myself back on board. I mentioned that route share. One of the times that he was taken off the field last season 
was through most of the fourth quarter of week 17 where at least some people were rooting for him to to score some more points so we'll see how that works out <laughs> in 2022 but ben that that's been a lot of fun to go through those teams obviously we'll dive into the entire rest of the nfc as we build out our 2022 strategy for the different formats that we're going to be playing we'll be playing them all we'll do some drafts for you we put out strategy plans for each of the individual positions we're going to be looking at the least expensive ways to play a lot of the different teams as we go forward so teams that we didn't cover today will be covered in the future but that was a lot of fun yeah definitely um always fun to talk through with you and and as i'm going through the projections process to get some some feedback on on rethinking some things so this this is a fun show well ben that'll do it for today's episode of stealing bananas i'm sean siegel with me is ben gretchen you can follow at yards per gretch make sure you sign up for stealing signals if you want to know what's happening during each week of the NFL season, there is absolutely no better resource. Make sure you do that. We're going to have all kinds of content. If you've been following us, you know, Connor O'Driscoll and Michael Dunmer are putting out just insane best ball workshop pieces that will help you beat all of these different formats. You can get 10% off if you use the coupon code RVRADIO2022 at checkout. Get 10% off that one year subscription. Then we did the, the Royal Rumble draft. We're about to do, if it pans out, we're about to do a super flex puppy over at Underdog. If you want to join us drafting over there, you can use the coupon code Rotoviz. Get a 100% deposit match up to $100. Subscribe to the feed, leave us a rating and review. You guys have been fantastic in both of those things. We appreciate the community so much. We know there have been some, some fun labels attached to the show recently on uh, social media, and we, we may or may not play into some of those as we go forward, but the community here has been fantastic. We love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, a company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.